If you've got your map in your Bible, you may want to pull that out. If you don't have your map, you can raise your hand and uh, Bill will bring you one. I think we still have a few back in the back there. Uh, just to remind you that where we left Paul last was in Berea and leaving Berea, heading for Athens. Paul's had a tough time in this second missionary journey, which you see traced out in this green arrow going around uh, the map in front of you. He went, uh, first of all, to Philippi, where they were flogged and imprisoned uh, illegally, kind of chased out of town, even while the leaders acknowledged, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, but uh, please be on your way. Then they headed on to Thessalonica. There they were chased out by a mob, which followed them 45 miles to the next town. So they blacklisted them from the synagogues in Thessalonica. Then they turned to ministering to the Gentiles, and even that was not permitted. They were chased away, chased away. And when Paul had left and was on his way to Athens. So follow this little green line over the sea, around the bend here, and up to Athens. He headed there, and for a short time he said, I'm going to leave Silas and Timothy behind because all the anger was really directed at me. And then as soon as he arrives, he says, when you get back, tell those two guys, meet me here. We've got more stuff to do. So Paul's got a few days to kill. He's been through a harrowing ordeal or three. You might expect that at this point, arriving in Athens, a vacation destination, he might just relax, enjoy the city and see the sights. And in fact, it sort of seems like he tries to do that, doesn't it? He starts walking around Athens, and as he walks around, he becomes more and more perturbed because he sees that the city is full of idols. His spirit, we read, is provoked within him. And he says to himself, I've got to do what I do. And that is to first go and reason with the Jews in the synagogues and then go and talk to the Gentiles and the Greeks in the marketplace and tell them all about Jesus. Now, we're going to look at just one aspect of this today. Uh, Next time, we're going to talk about the actual content of Paul's message and how I think we can learn quite a bit about relating to our culture, looking at how Paul relates to that culture. I think there's an awful lot of overlap between first century Athens and uh, 21st century America. You know how everyone's always reading philosophy everywhere you go. No, but there are certainly overlaps. There's certainly lessons to be learned from what he actually teaches. But but today I want to look instead just at his approach and the confidence that Paul has in his approach and the source of that confidence and how God has been preparing even this very moment for centuries. So I want, to, I want to share with you a backstory here. And this is something that you find uh, if you happen to be reading uh, philosophy and the history of philosophy and you pick up the third century writer Diogenes Laertes uh, and you say, oh, I want to read about uh, all the Athenian ph- philosophers and poets. He tells us about something that happened 600 years before Paul arrives in Athens that very much informs the way Paul approaches his hearers. When Paul is taken, he's brought up to what's called the Areopagus. We call it Mars Hill sometimes. On on this hill, it's a sacred hill, a place associated with with the Roman god of war. There they had a place of discussion. 
And we're told that what they like to do all day long is talk about and listen to the latest ideas. So essentially, it's like a dorm room, only it's really, really high end. Like if you were a member of the Areopagus, you were wise. And if you were wise in Athens, you were really, really wise. When Paul is brought there, he's standing in a place which has been an important place for for Athens for centuries, for, for pretty much the history of the city. This is where not only were ideas shared, philosophical ideas, but this is where the city was governed going back. And if we do go back six centuries, there is a story that relates to a sixth century B.C. poet slash philosopher slash kind of prophet named Epimenides. That's a fun one to say. Epimenides. Say it with me now. Epimenides. You won't find him mentioned by name in Scripture, but we do find him quoted in Scripture, and not just once. Epimenides lived in Crete. Look again at your map. Go from Athens south through the sea, and you bump right into the island of Crete. And the story starts not in Crete, but in Athens, where there was an enormous plague. And this plague just ravaged the city. There had been plagues. I mean, living in the ancient world, plagues are just something you deal with, but this one... It was horrible, and it showed no signs of abating. It didn't just tear through and kill a percentage of the people and then go away. It hung around, and it caused the leadership, the spiritual leadership, the political leadership of Athens to say something is different here. Something is wrong. We must have upset a god. Now, if we determine that we've upset God, we just repent to our God. But if you're an Athenian, you've got to decide which of the many, 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 many gods you've offended. And so they begin the Herculean, see what I did there, task of going through each and every god and making a sacrifice and be like, sorry, sacrifice, sorry, sacrifice. Now they thought they probably knew what had upset this god. Their king had done something just awful. He'd promised that he wasn't going to kill these people. They surrendered. He killed them anyway. And they're like, we just have to figure out which god is angry. After a while, it seems like going through this entire catalog of gods, this enormous pantheon, was having no effect. And so they started going to the the oracles. Uh, They went to the, the Pythian oracle. Remember, not long ago we saw Paul being followed around by a girl who was used to predict the future and do fortune telling. She had a python spirit. That is exactly the kind of oracle they go to. This sort of spirit that gives wisdom and insight into the unseen world, we'll find out from Paul when he casts out the demon that it's actually an evil spirit. But they go to those oracles and they say, what should we do? They go to different seers and they say, what should we do? Ultimately, they come up empty after going through every god they know of and offering a sacrifice. Nothing had worked. None of the gods had been appeased and relented. The plague was still there. In fact, it was worse than ever. Clearly, they'd missed a god. Maybe they didn't even know about the god that they had missed. And so the council that governed the city gathered at the Areopagus. They gathered on Mars Hill. And they decided they needed outside consultation. And so they sent for this guy named Epimenides of Crete. He's going to come in. He's going to look at the situation. He's going to give us some fresh perspective. He's got wisdom. He's a philosopher. He's a poet. He knows what he's doing. Let's give that a try. 
And so they send for him, but it takes a while for the message to get down to Crete, for Epimenides to get his stuff together and come back up. And during those days, the plague takes a turn even for the worse. People are suffering everywhere throughout the city. And when Epimenides finally gets off the boat and takes in the scope of what's going on, he notices undoubtedly two things. One, sickness and suffering everywhere in the city. This is a bad problem. And two, more gods than anyone could even imagine. Okay, in fact, it was said, it was a proverb, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That's how bad it was. What Mackinac Island is to fudge, Athens was to gods. And you would go there and you would seek out whatever gods you were after. They were all lined along the roads. Idols and idols and idols and altars and altars. They were, they were lining the Acropolis, shimmering in the sun. It seemed, looking out of there, there couldn't possibly be a god that they weren't in some way paying homage to there in Athens. And yet, apparently, there was one or Epimenides wouldn't be there. And as he arrived at Mars Hill, he found the elders of the city already waiting there for him. And there in the Areopagus, he, he laid out his plan, which was a brilliant plan. He said, I've come up with something. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet tomorrow morning, right down there at the foot of this holy, rocky outcropping. We're going to meet down there in the grasslands. And here's what I'm going to need. I need lots of sheep, all right? I'm going to need shepherds to bring sheep, lots and lots of them. I need stonemasons, naturally. I need a lot of stones. I'm going to need a lot of mortar. Vis-a-vis the sheep, here's what I'm asking for. They need to be healthy. They can't be sick. They need to be diverse. I want white ones. I want black ones. I want any kind of sheep you can bring. Most importantly, they need to be hungry. Don't feed any of these sheep between now and when we gather here tomorrow morning. And so they all came together after spending the night gathering all the stuff he had requested. And when they were gathered, Epimenides said to them, listen, I've considered your problem. I've considered what you've done. And I've come to a few conclusions. First of all, yes, you've missed a god. You you, you haven't properly sacrificed to every god. And we don't know which one you've missed. Secondly, this god that we've missed is great enough and benevolent enough to come to our aid if we ask him to by name. Now, maybe that's not true, but we have to assume it is because if it's not true, we're doomed anyway. So we may as well assume that that's the case. And thirdly, if he's that good of a God and that powerful of a God, even though we don't know his name, if we just own our ignorance and and confess our ignorance and say to him, we're sorry that we don't know your name, and plead with him anyway, he will smile upon us, he'll forgive us for that, and he will rescue us from the situation we find ourselves in. So here's how it went. He ordered them to release all of the sheep down into the grassy area. Now these sheep have had a good night's sleep, but they haven't had breakfast. They didn't get their their late night meal. If they were going to have one of those coming, they're hungry. And the idea is that there's guys following the sheep around, this is the kind of weird thing on your, on your resume, right? Sheep follower or whatever. But, but this important job today, follow them around and see where sheep might lay down. Now, stay with me. And by that, I mean stay with Epimenides. The thought process is hungry sheep are just going to graze and graze and graze. They're not going to say, oh, look, lush, lush grasslands and then just lie down. 
that if they're healthy, which they were supposed to be, any of them that lie down, it's because of something supernatural. And so they, they're to follow them and mark the spot where any sheep would just lay down and then keep hold of that sheep. This sheep, this spot, the thought process being that if these sheep stop eating and just lie down, that's a sacred place. And that that would be the result of the moving of that God. And so they release the sheep. They follow them. And you see what he's doing here, right? Gideon put out a fleece to hear from God. These people are so desperate, they're putting out a whole flock. Lots and lots and lots of fleece. The men followed. They're probably not expecting, I would guess, that any of these sheep resting in the morning well hungry are going to just lie down. Rather, they're going to just keep on chomping and chomping. But almost immediately, a few of them begin to lie down here and there. They mark the spot. They set the sheep aside. And at each spot that the sheep got tired and lay down, an altar was built. That's what the stonemasons and the stones and the mortar were for. And that where they had laid down, that's where that sheep would be sacrificed. But as the stonemasons finished the first altar, it seems that they had some kind of a a crisis saying, wait a minute, any altar we've built, we've inscribed with the name of the God. You know, you have to dedicate these altars or, or, or it's kind of sacrilegious. And so they decided the thing to do was just to write two words, agnosto theo, which means to an unknown God or the unknown God. And so they made the altars. They sacrificed the sheep. And that very night, there seemed to be a break in the spread of the plague. Within a week, it seemed to have kind of dissipated. And it was going away the way they were used to plagues, going away after they had done their damage. And there was a sense in the city that this unknown God was perhaps the most powerful God there is. Maybe the greatest God, maybe the only God that really could save them because none of the other gods had been able to or at least had been willing to come to their aid. So people came in throngs to decorate these altars with flowers and wreaths. And it was a very a festive time to think about. In fact, here's what's crazy is that where Paul is standing 600 years later addressing the Areopagus, 600 years earlier, he could have looked down the hill and seen all of this. But what happened is what seems to happen always. The time passes. The very generation that saw these things passes away. And before long, we have vandalism. We have overgrowing of grasses. We have people carting away stones in order to use them for other things. They go, is this something sacred? Unknown, I don't know, whatever. And before long, only one of these altars even remains there in Athens. And that is the altar that Paul brings up as he stands before the men at Mars Hill. Again, we'll look at the content of his his message, which is brilliant and and full of spiritual insight next time. But I just want to talk about why he is able to bring this up with such confidence and how God has been at work for centuries pointing forward to this very moment. We're told in verse 16 that Paul was troubled at how many idols there were in the city. And you've got to guess that there were more idols when Paul walked through the streets than when Epimenides did, because that's how it works. Idolatry always creates more idolatry. You always need more and more gods. Rarely does a god ever get removed. No, just add more, add more. It happens in our lives too, by the way. You start saying, well, I mean, all I need to be happy should be God, but I guess all I need to be happy is God and 
this possession and this position. And, and it starts to suddenly, well, I need that. And it's like that scene in The Jerk when he's like, all I need is this chair and this microphone stand and my dog. And it just goes on and on and on. Before long, he's like, I need all this stuff. And so there's so many gods. He walks around and he, it fuels his evangelical zeal. He can't stop. It's like pouring gas into his spiritual tank. And so as was his custom, he went and reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues. He went and reasoned with the Gentiles in the marketplace. And we read in the NIV that some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers heard him and began to dispute with him. They thought he was preaching about foreign gods because he was talking about Jesus and Anastasis Jesus and the resurrection. They thought those were two names of two foreign gods. And they said they took hold of him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, I, I want to challenge that notion that this is similar to when he was grabbed and dragged off to prison or dragged off to be tried for sedition and, and for, for being un-Roman and unpatriotic. Yes, the NIV says they disputed with him, but it's probably better translated as it is here in the ESV and most other places as they conversed with him or discussed. They had a conversation. The word actually, had a, it woodenly at its core, and you have to be careful with this, but what it means is to throw with. And it hadn't changed much in meaning since then. It's a kind of a game of rhetorical catch. You never play catch? You're doing it just for the fun of it, the exercise of it. That was the most popular game in Athens in that day. Rhetorical catch. Here's an idea. Huh, here's another idea. In fact, we're told all they did all day long sitting up there was listen to and discuss the latest ideas. So if that was the case, they're just having a discussion. Why did they take hold of him and bring him? It's the same Greek as when uh, they took hold of Jason and dragged him before the magistrate in the last chapter. But it's also the same word and same verbiage here as when Barnabas takes hold of Paul and brings him to the apostles and says, look, I got Paul. This is similar, in fact, the same, same words used here as when Jesus takes hold of the man with dropsy and heals him. So it's not necessarily a situation where he's brought against his will. No, Paul's excited for this, and they're probably excited to have found him. Because finding a guy with new gods to promote in a city that is chock full of gods, that's a big get. You'd be pretty popular if you show up at the meeting of the Areopagus and say, guess what? I got a guy with gods we don't even know. Let's listen to him. Now, Paul had been preparing for this, walking around the city. Once he was overwhelmed and provoked in his spirit by the, the sheer multitude of the idols, he seems to walk around and study them. Because Paul is a master of what we might call intercultural communications, finding a point of connection between me and my worldview and you and your worldview so that we can connect over this and I can communicate the gospel. He seems to do this in many cities. In fact, if he came to Lansing and he spoke here, he'd probably say, listen, I've gone about your great city and noticed that there are enormous potholes. And I, it reminds me of how our hearts are rocky and full of a giant hole that Jesus needs to fill and come and, I don't know. But he was there, and the streets, there were Roman roads. They were in good repair. But the place was full of gods. It was just idle, 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 idle. And we might wonder, why bother looking at those? Why bother looking deeper? 
Each of these fakey gods has its own backstory and its own cult of worship surrounding it, and they're all different. But obviously, there's not going to be one that lends itself to teaching monotheism is better than all of these other gods. Or is there? In the midst of all these gods, Paul comes across the altar to the unknown God. That, that same God who saved Athens from a plague hundreds of years earlier, the God they had called out to with hope that by begging for his aid without even knowing his name, he might have mercy and reach out his hand and rescue them. And now finally, after centuries, someone who knows this God, who knows his name, who knows what he's done and what he requires of us, is standing on this very hill in the Areopagus, the same place they came up with that plan, and saying what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. I'm going to fill in the blanks. He found a connection with them. See, there, there are lots and lots and lots of gods there, but when you go back and you read, you know, even like the philosophy you're required to read in those intro college classes or in high school even, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, you find a notion of a greatest god. An unmoved mover, or an um, because um, I don't know much about him. I just know there must be a great, greatest God. They spoke of this God vaguely. They didn't understand much about him. Now Paul stands up and says, I, I don't need to hem and haw and um, I know about this God. Now you don't need to hear that backstory about Epimenides to understand this text. You can understand it as it stands. But Paul almost certainly knew this backstory here. Why else would he quote Epimenides in verse 28 while talking to these men when he says, in him we live and move and have our being? There were thousands of philosopher poets from over the ages that had lived in Athens that Paul could have quoted and he would have known many, many of them given his background and education. There was nothing in Athens but idols and philosophers and poets. But Paul quotes Epimenides, particularly. He's reminding them of what this unknown God had done in the past and how he is a God who saves when all your idols and all the other sinking sand and all the junk that you trust in falls flat and leaves you without any hope. Paul actually quotes Epimenides again in Titus 1, 12 to 13. It's one of my favorite quotations in all of the Bible in which he says, oh, even one of your own prophets says Cretans are all like lazy gluttons and liars. And that's true. He even calls this man a prophet. Why? Because, as he says here, that you might reach out to God and find him, though he is not far from any of you. He's saying perhaps this man Epimenides was yet closer and reached out and found the true God, as we read in verses 26 and 27. Now, Paul, as he thought about his approach here, as he kind of mulled over how upset he was about these many, many idols and how it was such an affront to God, could have approached the city any of a hundred different ways. When you're distressed in your spirit, he could have just ran with that. And sometimes Paul does seem to actually act or speak out of anger. Undoubtedly, he felt a righteous anger at the sight of these idols. 
Paul is the one who wrote in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart. He could have just nailed them in that same way. I see all these things that represent men and birds and reptiles and all this kind of stuff. What are you doing? He, he could have made a big sandwich board sign that said, like, turn or burn and stood on a, a box as they were all showing up for work at the Areopagus or whatever they considered that. As they, as they showed up for the day, he could have just shouted at them, repent, you're all idolaters, God will judge idolaters. And all of that is true. But he doesn't do that. He does get to repentance. Notice in verse 30 and 31, God calls all people everywhere to repent. But he doesn't start there. First, he looks for ways in which God has already been at work to prepare the soil of their hearts for the sowing of the seed of the gospel. He doesn't just curse the darkness. He shines the light, and that is vital. He could have said, your hearts are wicked, idle factories, which they are because all human hearts are wicked, idle factories. But instead, he says, I've looked around the city, and I see that you are in every way religious. He says, I, I, because he saw them in every aspect of their life and their society, reaching out, trying to connect with their creator. And he said, that's good. You even have an altar here to an unknown God. What you need is to learn about who he is and what he's done. You need to meet this unknown God, the one who created everything, the one in whom, as Epimenides said, we live and move and have our being, who created the world and everything in it. He wants them to, to seek the Lord while he may be found, to quote the prophet, to recognize, as he said, that God is not far off from them, even though these idols are like a, a wall of defense against having an encounter with the one true God. Think about what this teaches us then about God's sovereignty. About how God is at work in an enormous macro way. About God having a master plan that absolutely blows away any thought we might have of what a plan might look like. You remember that scene in Back to the Future 3? I know you do. He says, Marty, you're going to get in the DeLorean. It's a time machine. When you hit 88 miles per hour, you travel through time. He says, I want you to drive right toward that backdrop and the movie screen here in the desert drive-in theater. I don't know. And he says, just drive right at it. And he says, well, I'm going to run into the, the backdrop with all the Indians on it. He says, Marty, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Those, those Indians won't even be there. You're going to go back in time to before they existed. You've got to think fourth dimensionally, not just width and height and depth, but time as well. And when we think about the way God and his sovereignty works, we have to even take that 
into account. Our God is outside of time. And this is not the only story where we see something like this. Here that we see in Acts 17. I told you a few weeks ago about the Karen people in Burma. How even Adoniram Judson, the greatest missionary, he'd almost given up on the idea of, of reaching them. He was told by all the other Burmese people, they're savages, they steal, they kill, they're unteachable, their minds are dark. And I told you how Judson made a convert of a notorious Karen criminal, a guy named Kota Bu, and how that guy had become one of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century. He would win entire villages in a day. He went around to his fellow Karen and he brought the gospel. But I didn't tell you the backstory. One of the reasons for the reputation amongst all the other Burmese that the Karen were backwards and savage was that they had not adopted Buddhism when most of the rest of the country had. Most of the other people groups had set aside their tribal beliefs and this stuff and had embraced Buddhism fully, or at least kind of syncretized it with their former beliefs. Not so with the Karen. They refused to become Buddhists. They clung to their tribal religion. And part of that religion, which was passed down from time immemorial, was a prophecy. A prophecy through the centuries, through centuries and centuries, as far back as anyone knew, that a, quote, white brother would come and bring them a book. Sometimes it's a gold or a silver book where this is written down. And it would be just like the book their forefathers had lost long ago. And that by bringing the book, he would then allow them to be set free. What's more, the book they expected had been written by the supreme God, whose name was Yuvah. Translated written into Y apostrophe W-A. And if you've studied the Bible deeply, that makes you go, whoa, wait a minute. Because the, the revealed name of God in the Old Testament, we often say it Yahweh. There are those who, who have kind of through German and some other stuff kind of twisted into Jehovah. That's not the best translation. In fact, this Yuvah is probably better than either of those in trying to recreate how the Hebrews would have pronounced this name of the one true God. This God who created everything, this God who was sovereign over everything, and this is the last thing you'd expect to find amongst someone like the Karen people. We'd expect them in their tribal language to worship what they called in Burma the Nats, the many different spirits and deities. We'd expect them to be involved in animism, perhaps in ancestor worship. But instead they said, there is one God, and we had the book, but we lost it, and someday someone's coming, and they're going to bring it back to us. This expectation, this prophecy, was first written down in 1795 by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Michael Symes, a British officer at the embassy in, in Rangoon, which was the capital of Burma. His assistant had visited a Karen village and had been kind of going through with, with an interpreter slash guide and seeing the different people groups. And most of them were like British and they paid him no attention. But when he got to the Karen village, they all mobbed to him. And some of them, through his guide, were able in, in official Burmese to say, is this him? Is this the white brother? Did he bring the book? And he had to say, guys, I'm just passing through. I, I don't know the book. I don't know this God. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm not the guy. And when he came back, he explained it. They wrote it all down. Adoniram Judson was only seven at that time. But when he was 25, he and his wife, recently married Anne, 
they arrived in Burma, and they brought the message of that book. And Judson began translating that book into the language of Burma. And he knew that book almost by heart. He knew it in English. He knew it in Greek. He knew it in Hebrew. He was such a Bible scholar. And you know, not too long after Judson arrived, the British began an attack on Burma. They were kind of going through a checklist they had, building that empire. All these colonial power situations. And it ended with them conquering Burma and ruling the country for a hundred years. And, and it increased the tension. And, and anybody who sort of looked like them, I mean, and Aaron Judson was from Massachusetts, not England, but they were like, you're suspect. They threw him in prison. They said, you're, you came not as a brother, but wanting to be our master. And while most of the country had that attitude, there were those who were Karen who continued to hang on to this prophecy that one day, one particular white brother, their younger brother, they said, would come across the sea from the west with white wings. I don't need to tell you that probably means sails, right? And restore to them the golden book of the great God, Yahweh. And in every uh, Karen village, there were these prophets and elders who would teach about this God. And they would plead with the people to abandon any worship of the spirits, the gnats, and, and return to worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They even passed down hymns, and we have many of them because of all the converts to Christianity who eventually came. Here, here's one. Who created the world in the beginning? Yahweh created the world in the beginning. Yahweh appointed everything. Yahweh is unsearchable. Another one says this. The omnipotent is Yahweh. He created man in ancient times. He has a perfect knowledge of all things. Yahweh created man at the beginning. He knows all things to the present time. Oh, my children and grandchildren, the earth is the treading place of the feet of Yahweh, and heaven is the place where he sits. He sees all things, and we are manifest to him. They're singing these songs about this God well, Judson is spending years trying to make a single convert amongst the rest of the Burmese population. He didn't speak Koran. They're walking by his hut singing these hymns. They told the story of Yavah creating the earth with a, a paradise at its center and the first man and the first woman and how they fell and how the curse of sin entered and that that's why they had lost their copy of the book and the hope that they had that God would send his servant, again, their younger brother, to bring them the book once again. Their hymns even talk about this and the restoration. Another one says this, At the appointed season, Yahweh will come. Dead trees will blossom and flower. Moldering trees will blossom and bloom again. Yahweh will come and bring the great and sacred mountain. Let us ascend and worship. And despite 90% of the country being Buddhist, they warned against idolatry, warned against ancestor worship, and emphasized loving your neighbor, honoring your parents, and praying and praying only to Yavah that he would bring what they needed to be restored to worshiping him, that they would get the book. And what's odd is you might think, all right, well, maybe they caught a piece of some other missionary. There hadn't really been much mission work before Judson, before him, Felix Carey, but he didn't make any inroads. And you'd think that if this was the result of just something spreading by a missionary, they'd have some other aspect. They'd have a Moses figure or an Abraham figure or a Jesus. They didn't have any of it. All they had was this notion of this one great God. Where'd they get this? You can imagine that perhaps it's something that's been passed down from the beginning of their people. 
And, you know, the notion that monotheism arose at some point out of animism and worshiping stumps and rivers and then worshiping lots of other gods and then finally worshiping one god, that it can't be true if we believe the Bible. It's incompatible with the Bible. First there was monotheism. First we worshipped our creator and then we began creating idols. And so it's possible that from this initial monotheism just passed down undiluted and unpolluted the teaching about this God. But even if that's the case, where'd this prophecy come from about a white brother with a gold book? I don't know. But wherever it came from, it was God at work preparing the Koran people whom he loved to receive the gospel when it came. Even if it was something that we would look at and go, yikes, Plato tells us that it was the Python oracles who told this, the city council in Athens to send for Epimenides. And yet God used that to bring about the unknown God altar, to bring about that point of connection. And we're going to see what great impact that had next time. And as Kotabu traveled from Karen village to Karen village, like I said, he was making converts like you wouldn't believe. In fact, he brought with him Sarah Boardman, who eventually would become uh, Judson's second wife. She became Sarah Judson after Anne died, and her husband died. But he brought her and her husband George, and he'd bring them around just to like gather a crowd. He'd be like, hey, everyone, look, white people. And they'd all come, and he'd say, listen, I want to tell you something. The book is back. I know about the book. I have the book right here. I've been taught how to read it, and I can teach it to you. And he found that it was just fertile ground for me. So this guy became, if I, I wish I had a, a hundredth of the spirit of preaching the gospel that Kotabu had. Bringing the gospel to a, a people that had been prepared by God for centuries and centuries to receive this gospel. Let me then just bring this home. When we think about the task of bringing the gospel to someone, of the Great Commission, of making disciples, it seems so huge that we often just get paralyzed. I could see myself, when they say, do you want to get up and talk to the Areopagus? Going, I don't know. Give me a few more days to collect my thoughts. i got to think about this. I don't know if I'm up to it. What if it backfires? But God has a plan and things we need to recognize that I think we, we learn from this passage. First of all, God's plan is not just for you. We have this notion in the church that I have a personal and private relationship with Jesus, and that's kind of the sum of it. In fact, if we were to, to picture what was going on here today, we might just have a line from each of you individually up to God like a single thread connecting you, like a, a, a line, one-dimensional. That's not how this works. You're not saved as an island. You're saved into the church. And it's not a single vertical line, a single thread. It is a tapestry that makes up God's plan to save the nations and to bring his own to himself. And he never does it with who or how you would expect. Just ask Ananias, who was told, oh yeah, Saul, that persecutor's on his way. I want you to pray with him when he gets there. Or Peter, who said, men are coming from that centurion's house. Cornelius, go back to his house. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? This is how God works. We have to stop saying, I don't know if I can do it, and say, oh yeah, God has a task for me, and it's part of an enormous tapestry. And there are people involved in it. I will never meet this side of glory. 
Secondly, it's not just involving other people, but God is outside of time. We must be thinking fourth dimensionally. When you have an opportunity to bring the gospel, remember that the God who prepares hearts, the same God who prepared that moment of the Areopagus for Paul to be able to say, oh yeah, the altar of the unknown God prepares those who will hear the gospel today. So there is a sense that perhaps it could have been 600 years ago, even with us, God began laying the groundwork for us to bring the gospel to someone in our lifetime, in this very moment. Thirdly, you may be reaping the benefit of how God came through in advance and prepared the ground for the sowing of the gospel seed, or you might be the one preparing the ground for someone down the road. Either way, it's equally important. You may be the one sowing, you may be the one watering, God is the one who makes the seed grow. And maybe yours won't grow for 600 years and it won't even be the ones you're talking to, but somehow God in his amazing sovereignty in a fourth dimensional tapestry that is his plan for the salvation of the world is using your and my humble efforts. Our few fish and loaves, he multiplies them. And he causes them to bring about things that glorify him. It's crazy for me to think that well, Epimenides was saying, let's cry out to this God and say, we're sorry we don't know your name, but please save us. God had just recently sent his people, Israel, into exile. Now we have people in Athens who are calling out to him. When you think about how God's plan isn't just for you or me, isn't just for this church, isn't just for the church in America, but transcends all of this, suddenly it takes the pressure off of each of us. Be the thread, yes, but be the thread in God's great tapestry. Recognize that the same God who said, um, let me set this up now so 600 years later, Paul can say this to the men on Mars Hill, is with you, and the same Spirit is indwelling you, and is giving you the words to say, and will use the gospel to draw his own to himself, because the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and they respond. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for how you were working in advance that great unknown God line of argument that Paul could use to connect. And Lord, we know that not everyone believed, but we do know that some did. And Lord, we thank you for the way that those Karen men and women and children had been waiting and waiting for someone to bring them a book with golden pages. And Lord, you, you work in mysterious ways, as our proverb goes, that, Lord, you, you are at work in ways we cannot fathom. And, Lord, we pray we wouldn't try to reverse engineer your plan. We wouldn't try to put it on our shoulders. We would simply try to be faithful to our little part and trust that you, a God who is outside of time, a God who is a sovereign over the entire cosmos, can use what we do to further your will and bring glory to yourself. In your holy name we pray. Amen.